You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is not as simple as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened up so many more doors. The show is called The The Deal. Deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. What's going on, everybody? This is Jared Sandler welcoming you to another episode of the Just a Sec Conversation. I'm not sure if I've really ever heard of this guy uh, his name's Eric Nadel, maybe? Is Eric? Oh, Eric Nadel. Okay, Eric Nadel. I think I've heard of him. No, it, in all honesty, uh, as I'm sure you probably could tell by the awful attempt at sarcasm, I am very familiar with Eric. He is a teammate of mine and has been uh, since 2015. He's been a mentor of mine, my foremost mentor since uh, I was in high school. Uh, he is... So very much uh, influential and responsible for uh, where I'm at in my career. And I'm so thankful uh, for my relationship with Eric. He is a Hall of Famer for a reason. Uh, You know, Vince Scully gets a lot of acclaim and he deserves it. Uh, I tend to think that Eric doesn't get the acclaim that he deserves. Uh, He is one of the best broadcasters, not just in baseball, but in all of sports. And he's been doing it for 40 plus years and he still has his fastball intact. Now, Eric's got so many other interests and he's such an interesting individual. Uh, you know, we didn't just talk baseball uh, and we're actually going to do a part two to this conversation uh, that will release uh, right around spring training 2021. So this is just the appetizer, uh, but here we go. Uh, We've got just a sec with the Hall of Famer, Eric Nadell. Before we get to it, just a reminder, would appreciate if you would subscribe, like, comment, or just share the link. Uh, Any and all of those would be appreciated. Without further ado, just a sec conversation, episode 61 with the Hall of Famer, Eric Nadell. All right, Eric, one of the questions I always like to ask people when you think back to your childhood, what are the things that stand out to you? No particular direction for it. Just what are the things that pop to your head? Um, sports is the first thing that pops to my head. You know, from the first time I was exposed to baseball and football um, and basketball, I was just crazy about them. Wanted to play it, wanted to watch it. Um, when I finally got a chance to see hockey, it was the same sort of thing, although I couldn't play it. Uh, we didn't have any ice, um, but I started going to games immediately, uh, and uh, that really dominated my childhood, that and trying to get good grades. I mean, my parents instilled in us early that it was really important to get good grades. You know, Even in elementary school, the report cards were a big, big deal, so those were the, those were the two things, really, that kind of dominated my life as a kid. Um, sports and, you know, taking school seriously and, and trying to do well in school. What was it about sports? I'm not really sure. 
um, I just had a fascination with it. Uh, first time, you know, I was given a ball to play with. Apparently, I really took to it. And then I was given a baseball glove at a very early age. And I remember playing catch with my dad and with my uncle Norman, um, really, really young. I, I don't know if I was four years old, something like that, when they first uh, gave me a glove. It's one of my earliest childhood memories, maybe my earliest. When did you start to grow an affinity for music? That occurred really young. Um, my parents would play music in the house. It was mostly Broadway shows in those days. It was like Oklahoma and South Pacific and The King and I, shows like that. But my sister, who's three years older, started bringing home records You know, in the late 50s when I was uh, probably seven years old, six, seven years old. And she was bringing home stuff like you know, Elvis Presley. And the first time I heard the Elvis Presley record that she brought home, it was Hound Dog on one side and Don't Be Cruel on the other side. Um, we both, we went nuts. And so we would buy every record he would put out. I think the next one was Jailhouse Rock and Heartbreak Hotel after that. And it was a really big deal. I also, because of the wanting to hear that music, I started listening to radio. And I was instantly hooked on radio, too. Um, the disc jockeys in New York, Murray the K was the, the big rock and roll DJ then. And then um, Cousin Bruce Morrow came along, Cousin Brucey, and all the disc jockeys on his station, which was WABC New York. And I also became kind of a radio addict. So it was kind of natural to get into music more and more and more, listening to the top 20 on these radio stations and you know getting excited each week about hearing the new records that would come on there and and try and predict what would be number one this week and what the top 10 would look like but all that happened you know before i was even 10 years old did you ever get into mtv when it like really started to become a thing or had you kind of grown past maybe the the stage of of who they were trying to target um, I was probably in their target. You know, I was about 30, I think, when MTV started in the early 80s. Um, but I just never got into music videos that much. I just, I wanted to hear the music, but the music videos never never really captured me the way they did most people. I love the fact, though, that I could turn on MTV and hear new music or hear new songs, you know, by artists that I was familiar with. And... You know, I was I was very excited about it. You know, first time I had a chance to you know, start watching MTV on a regular basis. Okay, now you you talked about like playing catch and whatnot. Did you ever? I mean, like, were you ever a part of a band? Did you did you play music or did you just enjoy music from afar? We actually had a jug band in high school. There was a band that we really liked back then called the Jim Kreskin Jug Band. And it was it was folk music, uh, kind of bordered on, um, bordered kind of on country, I guess you would say. And they used funny instruments. I mean, they used real guitars, but they also used instead of a regular bass, they used a wash tub bass. And instead of drums, they used a washboard. Uh, they also had a guy playing the jug, 
And as kids in high school, we tried to duplicate them. And I had no musical talent at all, but I could bang on a washboard. So I was (laughs) a washboard player in our high school jug band. And we mostly just played ourselves in our basements. And, you know, we had this group of kids who would hang out together, maybe 20 kids uh, who would hang out together on weekend nights. And, you know, we would work up a song and play it. And we actually even played one gig senior year in high school at our senior class party. We actually played a few songs. That was that was our big performance. But that's the only <laughs> time that I've ever really played, you know, an instrument such as it was a washboard. Uh, and the only time I ever really participated in a band. There were a couple of times I I sang in shows like high school shows and shows at summer camp i didn't have a very good voice but um based on the part that i had in the show sometimes i had to sing which was usually quite embarrassing uh, you know i guess I, I maybe i know the answer to this but so you're you have plenty of writing experience you're a really good writer recently you you had the the book of limericks uh and i guess in the you know, the last however many years you seem, I mean, you've become more connected to the music world in that you can maybe reach people that have an influence. Did you ever consider like writing songs or did you ever write songs or was that like anything that ever crossed your mind? Never really crossed my mind. You know, I never really thought that I had any knowledge of, you know, the actual music portion of it. I imagine if someone had come to me with a piece of music and said, write some lyrics, I would have considered doing it, but it just, it never happened. Um, and, uh, it might've been an interesting area to explore, but, uh, no, I never did it. All right. You mentioned high school before we, we move on. I feel like I know so much about your life just from talking to you and, and certain things I'm going to ask you about here that I'd love for you to share that I've heard you share before, but I don't know that I've really ever, heard you talk a ton about what you were like in high school. I know about, you know, your journey into broadcasting. And I know even a little bit, you know, when you were younger and, and learning that these guys got paid to brought to watch sports and but like what beyond the, the, the theater stuff you mentioned and being in a band, like what, what were you like in high school? And, and like, what do you remember about that specific part of your life? Well, I remember mostly the pressure to get good grades. You know, we were, I was in a, know advanced placement classes and honors classes and we were all trying to do the best we could to get into the best possible colleges our parents had you know kind of drummed into our heads how important it was to do that and you know and we knew from our high school you know maybe one or two kids would get into harvard and yale and and you know princeton and all those fancy schools and we wanted to be the one to be accepted and so we worked really hard. I'd spent far too much time on homework. Um, and I would imagine that by a lot of uh, people's viewpoints, from a lot of people's viewpoints, you know, I would have been in the nerd group in high school. But I was one of the cool nerds because, you know, we also, you know, we also had dates and we also did other stuff. We went to concerts and, you know, we went to parties and stuff like that. But the most important thing was making sure we got good grades. And then I continued to play sports. Uh, I played in an organized baseball league in high school, you know, a Sandlot league, and played on an organized basketball team one year in a league. Uh, 
went to lots and lots of games. Um, by the time I got to high school, I was allowed to take the subway and go to games uh, without my parents. So we would go after school sometimes. We would rush home, get our homework done, so we could hop on the subway you know, at 5 or 5.30 and go into Manhattan and watch the Knicks play. Uh, they played every Tuesday night at the Garden, and the Rangers played every Wednesday night. And we would go, and we with our student ID cards, we could get in for a dollar. Um, sometimes 50 cents, and sit in the upper balcony at those games. And we would go to dozens of games a year. Um, there were some days on the weekend, Sundays in particular, sometimes there would be an afternoon basketball game followed by an evening hockey game. We would go to both games. So a lot of the time that, you know, the free time that I had in high school was spent going to games. And then when baseball started in the spring, you know, we would do the same thing, although we couldn't really go on school nights to see a baseball game because the subway ride was too far and the games lasted longer. Uh, so we didn't get home in time to get the good night's sleep for the next day. So the baseball games were almost always on the weekends. Uh, but hockey and basketball games we would go to during the week quite a bit after school. What was that? I'm just picturing young Eric out and about in the town. Do you recall, was there like something you did that was super mischievous that got you in a lot of trouble with your parents or like something you could laugh at now, but back then was, uh, was maybe not a laughing matter or something that you perhaps even got away with that, uh, they didn't find out ever, or, or, you know, not until it was beyond the, the statute of, uh, punishment. Um, well, I was a good boy. I, I did what I was supposed to do for the most part. I did really get in trouble one night. We went to a Mets game. It was a weekend night, but I was still, I was supposed to be home by, you know, midnight or 1130 or whatever time it was, I was supposed to be home. And the Mets were playing the Giants with Willie Mays and Orlando Cepeda. You know, they were the, the most exciting team to watch. And the game went extra innings. And we really should have left at the end of the ninth inning to get home by the time we needed to get home. And we didn't. And the game kept going on. And the game eventually went, I think, 16 innings. We left, I think, after the 12th. And we wound up, you know, missing our curfew by an hour or something. And we, you know, we got into trouble for that. Um, I think we weren't allowed to go to a game for a month or something like that um, because we didn't leave when we were supposed to. But, like, that's about the worst thing that I ever did. <laughs> you, One of the things that stands out, and I don't know if people – behind the scenes or, or who who aren't behind the scenes would identify this, but then if they gave any thought, they'd be like, oh, yeah, that makes sense. The The detail that you use in describing things to me is rooted in uh, a few things, one of which is a, a curiosity and a willingness and, and commitment to follow through on that curiosity, whether it's asking great questions and you know, I, you obviously know this, but for people who don't, you know, I, I go to Eric a lot. Hey, what's the best way to ask this question? I know the direction, but like how, and then it's just like a wordsmith I and mean, it's like a wizard, but then also just like the research that you do. I mean, anyone, I guess, could bury their head into a computer or a book and do, re but like, there's always, there always seems to be a direction with the research. And I guess the best word I can use for this is curiosity uh, maybe that's not the best word, but like, where did that come from? Were you always like that? Was that something that you learned as you got older? Like that side of you, how how would you attribute the the evolution of that? 
I really think it comes from my mother. My mother was an extremely curious person. She asked a million questions. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is not as uh, simple as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened up so many more doors. The show is called The The Deal. Deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. Uh, And she always came up with stuff where you said, boy, that's really interesting. I don't know the answer. And, and it's a lot easier to look stuff up now, obviously. You just Google it, and you get the answer in 10 seconds. Um, back then, yeah, I remember in the house, we'd be running. We had two different encyclopedias in the house. We'd be running to encyclopedias trying to find the answer. We would, you know, think about, uh, she'd think of something. And, you know, that's probably where it came from. And then my sister um, was a journalist, and I think I learned a lot about how to do that, how to ask questions and what sort of questions to ask just from from watching her uh, and seeing what she did. And uh, um, I never had any sort of a journalistic background in high school or college. We didn't have any classes in journalism. Um, so I just kind of had to feel my way into that part of the, the so-called reporting part of the job. But in terms of just general life and um, wanting to know things, that that definitely was imparted by my mother. When did you realize that was like a, a strength or a, a weapon that you could use to separate yourself? Um, I don't know really that it occurred to me until probably a few years into doing baseball where I realized that, you know, there are opportunities in a baseball broadcast to provide, you know, interesting stuff because there's so much dead time that, you know, what would be interesting? What do I want to know? What would be interesting for fans to know? And I think that's really the first time that, you know, it occurred to me that, you know, maybe I'm better at this than some other people in listening to other broadcasts and stuff and not hearing the kind of interesting stuff, you know, that I was looking up and coming up with and, you know, and wondering about it and, and asking people about. Eric, I think you've shared this before, and I, I referenced this earlier. You were listening to, I, I believe it was Mel Allen call a game, and, and you had this revelatory conversation with your dad, like, wait a second. Uh, and your dad was a dentist, like, you have to go and do this, but these guys get paid to to broadcast baseball. Was was that, in fact, kind of your, your first memory of, like, hey, this is something I'd really like to do? Yeah, definitely. Um, I, you know, I was probably eight years old, seven or eight years old, you know, riding in the car with my dad. He was on his lunch hour, and he was going to drop me off um, and go back to work. And I asked him how how the announcers got off work so they could go to Yankee stadium. And yeah, it was, it was, whoa, well, I, that's what I want to do for a job. But, you know, prior to that, I thought I wanted to own a deli. Um, but it seemed like even more fun to be able to go to the ballpark and eat hot dogs and, you know, talk about a baseball game. Uh, you know, I already was really into radio, you know, into the disc jockey aspect of it. 
And that was another thing that at that point I thought maybe someday I'll be like Cousin Brucey or Murray the K. I'll be a disc jockey. Um, but when I realized that you could be on the radio watching a baseball game, you do both of those things and get paid for it, you know, that seemed to be the perfect combination. What do you remember about getting your first broadcasting job? And, and what was it? Well, it was crazy. Um, when I was a junior in high school, I went to a program at Northwestern University uh, in Evanston, Illinois, just north of Chicago, that was designed for high school students interested in radio. And they didn't have any sportscasting class as part of it, but it was a general broadcasting class, and they basically taught you to be a disc jockey and to run the board. And back then, you needed an FCC third-class license to do that. And they also gave us a course preparing us for the FCC third-class license exam and took us into Chicago at the end of the six-week program and had us take the exam, and we all passed the exam. Um, as a result of that, <clears throat> I was qualified to be a disc jockey, at least legally. And one of the kids in the program, uh, a friend of mine, was from Hope, Arkansas. And he had gone to the program largely so he could get his license because the following summer he was going to work at his local radio station in Hope, filling in for the three disc jockeys as they took their vacations. It was going to be a six-week job each disc jockey would get two weeks off. And I got a call from him in April the following year. It was a big deal then to get a long distance phone call. I mean, it cost a lot of money. And, you know, your mother answers the phone, Eric, it's it's your friend, Crit from Hope Arkansas. Hurry, hurry, hurry. And he said, "Uh, hey, I wonder if you could do me a favor. And I said, what's that? And he said, would you be willing to come down here this summer and work at the radio station? filling in for the disc jockeys. And I said, well, isn't that what you're supposed to do? And he said, yeah, but I'm working at the A&P sacking groceries and I'm making more than twice as much money as I would be making at the radio station. So if I can get somebody who's qualified to replace me at the radio station, I can keep this job at the A&P and I really need the money. So I said, well, yeah. And I was, you know, I was from Brooklyn and I was talking like this back then. I hadn't <laughs> lost my accent yet. I said, they're not going to hire me. And he said, just, he said, get, get a newspaper. He said, make a five minute recording of you reading the news. Do the best you can to tone down your accent. And at Northwestern, we had already started taking addiction classes. All, we all had different regional accents. He sounded like he was from Arkansas. I sounded like I was from Brooklyn. And so I could tone it down a little bit. And he said, look, they're mostly just interested in somebody who can legally run the board, knows how to queue up records and knows how to, you know, read the meters and all the other things you had to legally do. Um, They're not going to let you say very much on the air anyway. So I sent the tape down and they said, you're fine. Come on down. And that was my first job. I was on KXAR AM uh, 1340, the voice of Southwest Arkansas. And I had a six-week job as a disc jockey. The first two weeks, I worked, I think, from 6 to 10 in the morning. And then I had the 10 to 2 shift. And then I had the 2 to 6 shift. And uh, that's how I spent my summer uh, in 1968, which was the year I turned 17 years old, right before I went to college. I'm curious 
you know, I remember what it was like for me around that age and, and like trying to put together a plan to get into sports broadcasting and, you know, you got to do this and you got to do that. So when you're in that six week shift uh, as, a, as a DJ, I imagine you still had hopes of getting into sports. Like, wh- what do you remember about how you were going to construct the plan to ultimately pursue the, the path that you really wanted to pursue uh, like in an athletic realm and, and, and what was the first sports job? Yeah, well, I was really lucky in, when I was in high school, I sent letters to my favorite sportscasters uh, in New York, asking them for advice on how to get into it. And the best piece of advice I got was from a guy named Bill Mazur, who was the first sports talk show host. You know, this was before the original fan radio station in New York. He just had a sports talk show on WNBC in New York. And it was on every day, I think, from from four to seven in the afternoon. And I listened to it religiously every day. And I sent him a letter and he wrote back to me and he said, the most important thing you can do is go to a college that has a really good radio station where you can learn as much as you can about being a good radio announcer and where you'll get a lot of time on the air. And he specifically said, so don't think you have to go to one of the schools that has a broadcasting program. And there weren't that many back then. Syracuse had one. Um, I think Stanford had one. Um, He said it's more important for you to get on the air, what we would call reps today. And you'll learn from the other students. Maybe there's a professor who oversees the station who will help. So do it that way. And when I started looking for colleges, and again, my focus was on going to the best college I could go to, I made sure that I focused on the colleges that had good radio stations. Uh, and With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles. We win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. So that was my idea. Go to a school where there aren't a lot of people like me who want to be a sportscaster, and I will probably get to broadcast all the sports. Uh, But he also said... Do as much as you can in other areas of broadcasting on the air. Be a disc jockey. Be a newscaster. Go out and be a reporter. Anything you can do to be on the mic will help you, help you develop your style, make you more at ease on the mic. So the time that I spent in Hope, Arkansas as a disc jockey was a perfect example of that. You know, I you know, I did get to introduce songs. I did get to do some commercials. I got to read newscasts. I got to read farm reports. Um, so by the time I got to college the following year, you know, I already had experience as a professional broadcaster. When, when I went up to the radio station, you know, at Brown University where I went to college, uh, I was in fact the only kid in my class who was interested in doing sports there. Uh, and since I had already been on the air and I had an audition tape I'd made, you know, they, I went right on the air that year. I didn't have to go through the usual training program. And, and it was great because I started doing uh, hockey games and football games, uh, you know, as the second guy or the third guy. And then as the upperclassmen graduated, 
you know, I became the main play-by-play announcer on both of those sports. Uh, and hockey seemed to be the sport uh, that I was best at, and hockey was a sport that was really expanding. The National Hockey League went from six teams to 12 teams, and a new major league uh, was starting the year that I graduated, the World Hockey Association. There were minor league teams every place, and it seemed to be a great land of opportunity for me. So uh, I made up an audition tape of highlights of Brown University games I had done, and I sent them out to every minor league hockey team in the country. And when I graduated at the end of May, I still didn't have a job. Um, But a few weeks later, I got a call from the owner of the Muskegon Mohawks uh, in Muskegon, Michigan. They were in the lowest possible rung of professional hockey. And his announcer had just quit, and he went into the file and you know, looked at the applicants and called me and we had a one hour phone conversation. And the next day he called me back and offered me the job. And was this Moose Lawler? Well, it wasn't Moose Lalo. It was Moose Lalo's boss, a guy named Jerry DeLise, who owned the team. But he was in the process of selling the team to a local group headed by Moose Lalo who was the coach of the team and had been a star player for the team for many years. So as part of that whole thing, Moose Lalo became the general manager and ultimately became my boss within a few months after I arrived there uh, in early July of 1972. Okay, and then to, to stick on the hockey path, so then that was it that team that ultimately left or, or how did you end up moving south to continue doing hockey? Well, I worked there for three years and I enjoyed the job, but I didn't like living there that much. It was really cold. It snowed every day during the winter. Um, I was married at the time and my wife didn't really like it. And I kept applying for jobs in bigger markets. And, you know, I was actually even thinking that if I couldn't get a job in a better market, you know, after three years, I probably wasn't very good at this and I should think about doing something else. And I even, I took the LSAT and I started applying to law schools. And then one day I saw a note in the hockey news, which was the trade publication saying that uh, John Brooks, the announcer for the Oklahoma city blazers, which was the triple a team for the Toronto Maple Leafs uh, was quitting because he had been hired by the Oklahoma Sooners as the voice of their football and basketball teams. So I got on the phone and I called the Oklahoma city blazers and, uh, the general manager who was also the coach guy named Ray Miron said, yeah, the job's wide open. We just found out about this last week, you know, send me your stuff. And he called me back, you know, maybe a month later. And he said, you know, you're one of the two files for the job. Uh, I want you to fly to Montreal where we have our annual meetings uh, at the beginning of June. And, uh, you know, I'll interview both you and the other finalists. As it turned out, it was just one other finalist. And, you know, I'll hire one of you and, and that'll be it. And that's how I, that's how I moved from Muskegon to Oklahoma city. And that other finalist, that other finalist was Mike Emmerich. (laughs) And somehow I got the job over Mike Emmerich and I'm, I'm convinced to this day it's because the way Ray Miron conducted the interviews was he took each of us out to dinner, me on the first night and Mike on the second night. And Ray drank a lot. 
and I stayed with him drink for drink, and we had a really good time. And Mike Emmerich, I know, you know, hardly drinks at all. And I have a feeling that I got hired because I would be a better wingman on the road for Ray Miron than Mike Emmerich would have been. Oh, man. Uh, and I want to get more into uh... – the the base like your your entry into baseball because Doc Emmerich I know is not the only uh, big name uh, over whom you've gotten a job uh, and and this uh, other big I guess you know what I, I'm not going to tease this we're Eric and I are going to do a part two closer to spring training 2021 but I, I can't just throw this out there so you and I have something in common I, I don't know that I've ever told you this but we have both beaten out Minnesota Twins legends for broadcasting jobs. <laughs> I, I'll tell you mine, and then I'd love for you to share yours. When I got my job in Great Falls, Montana, with the Great Falls Voyagers, Jack Morris was I, – I didn't know this. They didn't tell me until – I think it was like almost – the year was almost over. I, I had no idea. You know, I assumed other people were interested in the job. I, I knew nothing about anything uh, other than ultimately that I got the job. They – Jack Morris, who – I think to boost his Hall of Fame profile, wanted to really, you know, get into broadcasting. And someone had told him, we'll let you do it, but you need to spend a year broadcasting in the minors. And I guess Jack has a house uh, or had or whatever in Montana. And of the Montana teams, Great Falls was the one that had an opening. And they, they basically, apparently he wanted to do it, but they basically told me that they didn't believe he would actually go through an entire summer staying in the bad hotels, riding on the bus. And so they, they didn't want to be in a position to have him quit in the middle of the year. And so they chose to then open up the hiring to a bunch of broadcasting dorks like myself. And I got the job, but I, I guess in a weird twisted way, I beat out Jack Morris now your story's better, and yours involves someone of of greater baseball significance. But can could you tell the story of the time you beat out a Minnesota Twins legend? Yeah, the way that the job opened up that I ultimately got hired to do at the end of the nineteen seventy eight season was uh, the Rangers broadcasting rights. In the first ten years, the team was in Arlington, were owned by the city of Arlington. It's one of the ways they got Bob Short, the owner of the Washington Senators, to move the team to Texas, is they bought the broadcast rights from him for 10 years and paid him in advance so he could pay off all his debts and leave Washington, D.C. without owing any money. And as a result, the city of Arlington put together a broadcast network, and they made a deal with KXAS to be the flagship station on TV and a deal originally with KRLD and then with WBAP a couple of years later to be the flagship station uh, on the radio. And they were still in that deal in 1978 when I got a phone call from Roy Parks, who was the director of the Rangers broadcast network for the city of Arlington saying that he was looking for another announcer. Uh, And I said, well, why are you, looking for another announcer. And I used to watch and listen to all the games and they had John Miller, you know, who went on to do Sunday night baseball for 20 years. And now is the voice of the San Francisco giants and a local guy named Bill Merrill. They were the radio announcers and on TV, they only did 27 games then. 
on TV. And Frank Gleiber was the TV announcer. He was the uh, sports anchor of Channel 5, as well as being a national announcer uh, who did a lot of golf tournaments and NCAA events and stuff like that. But the color man who they would use on those 27 games was a guy named Ken Suarez. And he had been a catcher for the Rangers. And when he retired, the owner of the Rangers, Brad Corbett, gave him a job as a salesman for his uh, plastic pipe company. That's how Brad made his money. He had a PVC pipe company called Robin Tech. And uh, and Suarez would get time off from his job with Robin Tech to do these 27 games on TV. And... Brad Corbett was the guy who really liked to hobnob with the players. And one day, apparently he was out golfing with Harmon Killebrew. I don't know how he wound up with Harmon, but he was at some pro-am tournament playing golf with Harmon Killebrew, the former Minnesota Twins great. And Harmon had done a little bit of broadcasting uh, in the Minnesota area. And Brad said, you know, we should hire you to be our TV announcer. That would be great. You know, we'd have a Hall of Fame baseball guy as our TV announcer. And Harmon said, I'd love to do it. So Brad called up Roy Parks, the director of the network, and said, I want you to hire Harmon Killebrew to be the TV announcer next year in 1979. And Roy said, well, I I can't do that. My contract with Channel 5, KXAS, requires me to use their sportscaster as the play-by-play guy on these telecasts, which are on Channel 5. And so Brad said, well, fire him. Uh, Use Harmon Killebrew anyway. And Roy said, no, I can't do it. And Brad said, well, if you won't do that, I won't let you use Ken Suarez as the color man on those telecasts. And Roy said, okay, I'll find somebody else. Well, I turned out to be the somebody else. And Roy was looking for not just somebody to do the color on the 27 telecasts because Bill Merrill, who was the number two radio announcer, was planning to retire in a year or two. And he wanted to start grooming somebody to replace Bill Merrill. And that's how he wound up talking to me about the job because he had heard me do hockey. He liked the way I did hockey. And as it turned out, he was also looking for somebody to help him sell advertising and put the network together. I had done all those things you know, in my minor league hockey jobs. I was working then for the Dallas Blackhawks doing all that stuff. And you know, I told him if he hired me to do the 27 games, then I would also do the sales job for him. And that kind of clinched it for me. But the reason the job opened up at all is because Brad Corbett promised the job to Harmon Killebrew and then couldn't deliver, and so he denied the uh, city of Arlington the right to use Ken Suarez. And that's how you beat out Harmon Killebrew. He only so has a few uh, more home runs, but he doesn't have the broadcasting career. Uh, <laughs> you know, and he wound up doing he wound up doing Twins games. You know, for a while he was actually really good, and I got a chance to to meet him and spend time with him. And you know, wonderful, wonderful guy, um, super kind to me. But uh, if it weren't for him, I probably would never have gotten this job. Did you ever tell that story to him? Yeah, I did. <laughs> I did. He, he was quite amused. And he, he didn't necessarily take Brad Corbett seriously, that you know Brad was going to 
actually hire him. And, and the rumors were that Brad had offered broadcast jobs to several players. Um, Nelson Bryles, who had played for the Rangers, um, Sparky Lyle, uh, when he played for the Rangers, Jim Sunberg. Jim Sunberg actually became a Rangers broadcaster, but he was one of at least four people who we know were promised broadcast jobs by Brad Corbett when he didn't even own the broadcast <laughs> rights. He didn't even have the right to hire a broadcast. Well, there you go. Episode 61 of the Justice Set Conversation with the Hall of Famer, the legend, the voice of summer for Rangers baseball, the great Eric Nadell. Uh, someone I'm very proud to call a friend and a mentor. Hopefully you enjoyed some of what he had to share. Again, more coming uh, in a few months as we gear up for spring training 2021. We'll have part two of this conversation. Thanks again for tuning in. Like, comment, subscribe, share. Would appreciate all of it. Until next time, stay safe, be healthy, and we'll talk to you soon.